Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. After four months of protests, Sudan's Omar al-Bashir is out of power. The military removed him, suspended the constitution, and said elections would take place in two years. The Sudanese Professional Association, this group of civil society organizations behind the protests, want a civilian-led transfer of power and say they won't leave the streets until their demand is met. With me is former Chicago Tribune foreign correspondent Steve Franklin. He's worked with Sudanese journalists over the years. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Thank you for having me back. I, you know, I wonder if we could reflect a little bit on the power of Sudanese civil society. I know when you were working with Sudanese uh, journalists, um, it was evident to you that they, that, that they had a very uh, powerful voice, and they have really used it over the last four months. It's been amazing to watch. Well, I don't know if it's a powerful voice. They had a powerful anger. Um, what, so I began, I, over three years I worked with um, journalists in Sudan, um, one in Khartoum, and then when the government wouldn't give me a visa, uh, we, we continued training, and they really wanted to learn um, uh, via Skype. And, and you have to you know, go back and understand the, the forces. I think, and this reminds me so much of what happened in Egypt. And I lived in Egypt just before Mubarak was overthrown. Um, regimes like this don't fall suddenly. They're a bunch of uh, pinpricks. And oftentimes you have the, uh, the overflow, the boiling of resentment, and then the shock that people can even do that. Um, what I discovered in working with the um, with the with the Sudanese was the tremendous um, powerful control of the government over everything being said. And one of the last sessions that we spent a lot of time on was, for example, um, the last few years, especially last few years, um, Sudan has suffered from serious problems of cholera. However, it was against the law to use the word cholera. I don't know if it was against the law, but practices. So we had to figure out a way to not to use the word cholera. So we had to say waterborne disease. And then when the government wouldn't talk about it and, and the journalists knew people were dying, we had to figure out a way to, to get the information. So we said, well, we'll go to the clinics. They said, we can't enter the clinics. And then we said, well, why can't we enter the clinics? Because the government doesn't want people to know there are not enough doctors, not enough medicine. And... What this said to me was that this is a society suffering in many, many ways, um, with tremendous deficits. Yet the journalists were brave, uh, incredibly brave, um, and willing to take on the challenges. Of course, there were uh, you know, journalists who were uh, kissing up to the government, but yet there were still others. And, and, and um, early on, when I first was in Khartoum, I, I worked with a journalist there, teaching them we couldn't call investigative reporting we had to make up a pseudonym for that and um he called me soon after i returned from khartoum and i was astounded because you know, the wages there may be fifty dollars hundred dollars a month and said thank you steve so much for uh talking to me and teaching me because i just did an investigative article pointing out um on the pollution of the nile i said of course the government closed my newspaper i was stunned and hard broken. I said, well, I'll help you. what are you going to do? He said, well, eventually they'll let us back. But I learned. So my sense is what happened in, in Sudan now is a boiling over of uh, frustration because of many insults to the 
common life of the Sudanese. Well, you know, um, Steve, you, you mentioned the um, Egypt and having uh, experience with Egypt and right. the uprising there. And here today, uh, the President of the United States is meeting with President Sisi of Egypt, the right. general yeah. military ruler. And, uh, you know, over in Algeria, the military has moved out the president and is taking control. Um, obviously, Sudan's past is nothing but military takeover, military takeover, military takeover. Uh, right. Is there any chance that uh, these people, the Sudanese Professional Association and, and the people in the streets, can can break the spell of history? No, it's very difficult. You have a long-term uh, military control. Um, and the same thing in, in uh, Algeria. In Algeria, you, you have uh, – you know, Algeria had a slightly more open form of, uh, of discussion um, and um, Sudan – Broken parties, parties ripped apart. So there's not the problem that you're going to have in Sudan is the same problem that you had in Egypt. Is that um, when you had election times, there really was no viable option. And I think that's the same thing. Years of suppression and anger and frustration have 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 reduced the opposition. So there's, you know, in coming up with an alternative, it's going to be very difficult. And the military is, as in Egypt, going to be extremely oppressive. Um, the other thing I you know, point out is that um, there are at least two other rebellions or wars going on inside of Sudan. Never talked about, never discussed, incredible uh, oppression. Um, and, you know, as in Darfur, um, we have, you know, cases of uh, incredible starvation and suffering beyond Khartoum. Um, so difficult. One time... I was talking with a, a, a journalist who was working in one of these regions, and because they had stolen his car and destroyed all means of communication, he would cover these the, the thievery and the rioting that would take place, often by government-supported gangsters or militia, traveling as a peasant with a donkey. Wow. And that's the only way he can get the story out. <laughs> that's Just, amazing. You know, you know what, what, again, you know, I... Three things stunned me about Egypt, about Sudanese journalists. I'm, I mean, I'm always stunned about work I do with uh, journalists in developed countries. Was a their bravery, and and this belief that they deserve their rights. And it's and you know, oftentimes in the West we say, well, these folks not used to it, they're not familiar with it. That is exactly a mistake. They understood what freedom is, and they wanted it, and and their quest to do it among tremendous, you know, um, setbacks. So I think my gut feeling is that, yes, they're going to face problems. And and, and you have to also remember that um, Sudan, like many other places, will need support from the outside world. Well, we lifted our sanctions in 2017 on most items um, against Sudan, thinking that it would change things. It didn't change things. Um, the lesson of sanctions from the Sudanese I talked to was that the people who suffered were the poor people. Lack of medicine, lack of options for modern technology. The regime didn't care about that. Um, the regime was willing to go on and doing what it wanted. Um, so again, I think we need a, um, a holistic point of view. How do these regimes fall? They fall on many ways that they're broken. And finally, people become willing and, and daring to speak up to them. Will the military be overthrown? Not, not a good example. Tunisia is the still to this day the best example we have in the Arab world 
of an overthrow uh, where uh, uh, people come to power, opposition groups come to power, things don't work out, and, then, and they're willing to negotiate for uh, a transition to another party um, that can maybe find a compromise. Right. In all the Arab world, we have that one example of, of a successful uh, 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 you know, growth of the Arabs bringing it to reality. Steve Franklin is a former Chicago Tribune correspondent. He's worked with Sudanese journalists over the years. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about Sudan's Omar al-Bashir being ousted in a military coup and the civil society organizations in Sudan saying they are going to stay in the streets until there's a civilian transfer of power. Good talking with you, Steve. Thank you. Bye. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Clutching a copy of the book Gore Vidal, History of the National Security State, Julian Assange was carried away from the Ecuadorian embassy in London today, where he had spent the last six years. He was taken into custody for breach of bail conditions and an extradition request by the United States. Robert Mackey is writing about the Assange case for The Intercept. He is in London. Thanks for joining us, Robert Mackey. Uh, Thanks very much. I wonder if you could give me some idea of what this means for London. This this Assange thing has been a feature of London for a long time, and I imagine there is um, kind of an odd fascination about the end of times here. Well, there has been a kind of strange scene outside the Ecuador's embassy in London. It's in Knightsbridge, a kind of upscale neighborhood. It's near Harrods. Um, And we've had frequent bouts of uh, rumors that some sort of arrest or expulsion was coming up. And um, there have been, you know, strange scenes of journalists crowding around, activists crowding around the embassy at different times uh, that turned out to be false alarms. And uh, you see tourists coming up, taking pictures. Um, so that's been going on for quite a while. And there there were previously what turned out to be false alarms. But it is true that uh, just a few days ago, WikiLeaks did say that this was coming. And a bunch of people were camped outside. And, you know, that that whole kind of uh, moving carnival has been going on. And the Ecuadorian uh, government is has changed hands pretty recently, and it seems like the the new leader is not as interested in, in having Assange there as, as the previous one. That's right. Uh, Lenin Moreno, who's the uh, current president of Ecuador, uh, said that basically that he inherited this situation. He, he felt like he was, <clears throat> excuse me, doing his best uh, to cope with it. Um, but he obviously was under some international pressure. Uh, clearly, the United States is interested in Assange uh, getting out of the embassy. And now we know uh, there had was a secret indictment of Julian Assange um, that was revealed by mistake last November uh, that led them to issue a warrant for his arrest, um, uh, for the British authorities to cooperate with his arrest in December. Um, but yes, Moreno, there, there have been uh, sort of a, a feud going on. Uh, his predecessor, Rafael Correa, uh, denounced him today for uh, facilitating this by withdrawing uh, Assange's asylum. Um, but Moreno said that, you know, Assange basically had acted against the terms that he'd set, uh, which are that he would not interfere in the internal affairs of other countries. He was given sort of diplomatic license to be in Britain. But of course, 
diplomats around the world are not supposed to interfere in the internal affairs of the countries they're in. And they felt that he was interfering in a, a number of countries' internal affairs. There was also a controversy where Moreno's uh, private phone was apparently hacked recently. Uh, photographs of him and his family were posted online. And he came very close to saying, but didn't say outright, sort of implied that he felt that WikiLeaks or supporters were behind this. And uh, that seems to have been involved in the push from Paul here. Now, is there any indication that uh, the Ecuadorian government was working in concert with the U.S. on this? Because it seems like the U.S., uh, with the arrest of uh, Chelsea Manning and the the, uh, documents you referred to earlier, the indictment you referred to earlier, they've been kind of cooking up their, their charges on Assange at the same time. Uh, yes, <clears throat> excuse me, that's right. I, I'm not sure of any recent reporting that Ecuador has been talking to the government. I mean, in a strange uh, overlap of uh, kind of different um, conspiracy theories and uh, strange aspects of history, uh, someone who did go to visit Ecuador uh, at the beginning of 2017 and apparently talked about um, Assange was Paul Manafort um, and that he uh, actually flew to Ecuador to try and uh, broker some sort of deal between the countries in 2017. That led, following that, there was what appears to have been a false report that Manafort visited Assange in the embassy in London. There's no evidence of that, and there's good reasons to think it didn't happen. Well, let's get to the charges that the U.S. uh, is going to try to bring against Assange. Um, Explain, uh, it sounds like they're going to say that uh, he was conspiring with Chelsea Manning to uh, get documents. Um, tell us why that is important. Well, that's right. The indictment, um, uh, the prosecutors allege that in March 2010, they say Assange engaged in what they call a conspiracy with Chelsea Manning, who was a f- former intelligence analyst in the U.S. Army at that time, then known as Bradley Manning. Um, and the charges, it, it's kind of a strange one. It says that uh, He's specifically charged with trying to crack the password on U.S. Uh, Department of Defense system computers um, and that this is, uh, made him part of a conspiracy to um, pilfer documents. What's odd about it, uh, one of the several things that are odd about it, is that uh, Assange seems to have had no luck. There's nothing in the indictment that says that it actually worked, that he was able to break any uh, password. And the indictment specifically says that at this stage, when Manning asked for this help with the password, it was to get to some other part of the system. Um, but it was after uh, Manning had already leaked hundreds of thousands of classified documents about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan to WikiLeaks. So it's it's a bit of a strange one because you would think if they were trying to say Assange um, somehow took part in the stealing of documents from the U.S. government, that they would have been the government's the, the documents that were published. It appears here that it's a very technical violation or, you know, intended violation, attempted violation later in the process. But, of course, the real – the key thing for journalists looking at this is that – and apparently the Obama Justice Department did consider charging or trying to charge Assange with the 2010 – the documents published in 2010. Uh, The thing that's chilling for investigative journalists is that in this case, if you can – charge somebody uh, for just receiving and publishing leaked documents. That's the kind of thing that the New York Times, the Guardian, international uh, news organizations do all the time. Investigative journalists uh, very frequently get access to documents that businesses or governments do not want them to see. 
uh, I guess the, the place where they're trying to draw some sort of line is whether the person who published the documents played any role in illegally obtaining access to them. It's a very narrow uh, kind of charge. It seems flimsy. And there seems to be an understanding that the Obama Justice Department thought it was so flimsy that it decided not to pursue this, which makes it kind of a strange situation now that the Trump administration, which uh, tries to react in every way against the Obama administration, is pursuing this, uh, particularly given the role that uh, Assange and WikiLeaks later went on to play in the 2016 election. I'm talking with Robert Mackey from The Intercept, and he's in London, and he's covering uh, the Julian Assange situation. Julian Assange was arrested today in London, and we're talking about the charges. In essence, the United States seems to have a, uh, you know, uh, accepted the idea that Julian Assange's attorney puts out there all the time that he is a publisher, that he is someone who is gets First Amendment protection, and uh, you know the person who is leaking, if they they are they have done the illegal act by leaking the documents to him, uh, that sounds like uh, even the Trump administration won't cross that line. It, that appears to be the case on the surface, but obviously. It's such a narrow technical violation, you have to wonder what the reason for pursuing something like this is. I mean, even part of the prosecutor's statement uh, is discussing, I guess they somehow got access to uh, private chat messages between uh, Manning and Assange at the time uh, from through a service called Jabber, which was otherwise considered quite secure by journalists. Um, and in those discussions, they say that uh, they quote Assange basically encouraging Manning to do more leaking, Manning saying to Assange, after this upload, that's really all I've got left. And Assange replying, uh, curious eyes never run dry in my experience. And so the idea that a journalist encouraging someone to look for interesting documents that might be of public interest, that that's somehow part of a crime, that really does seem to signal uh, that a line would be crossed. Uh, you know, it's hard to – do you think the British government extradites on something like that? That They, they have a choice here whether they can extradite or not. Do, do, do they have a, uh, you know, a skin in this game? Well, yeah, it's an interesting question. He, he was initially uh, – the statements from the London police are that he was initially arrested not on this warrant. He was initially arrested for skipping bail when um, – back in 2012 when he took refuge in the Ecuadorian embassy – he was facing he had his appeal against extradition to Sweden, where he was wanted for questioning on sexual misconduct uh, allegations. He had lost that appeal and was due to be extradited to Sweden on those charges uh, for the for that questioning rather. Uh, and that's why there was an outstanding warrant for his arrest. He had bail. He skipped bail. And even though Sweden gave up on that investigation, basically saying that because they couldn't, he wouldn't leave the embassy, they couldn't bring him to Sweden for questioning. That they were dropping the case. The outstanding warrant in Britain was for him skipping bail, which is obviously a violation. Uh, he was found guilty of that today in a magistrate's court, uh, and his excuse that it was an unjust prosecution was essentially ridiculed by the judge. Um, but then the judge said that in the meantime, they would have some time to consider the extradition request of the U.S., and there's going to be another hearing on May 2nd. The question of, the, of Britain automatically extraditing to the United States is not, uh, it's not clear that that's something that will happen. Just last year, a uh, computer hacker, a British computer hacker named Lori Love, who had actually accessed U.S. government computers uh, and, and stolen things from them, uh, was uh, won an appeal against extradition and was not sent to the United States. There was a ruling that in that case, that person, uh, there was an idea that 
he might be at risk of killing himself if he sent to the United States, that he would be endangered in U.S. jails. Hmm. Uh, and the high court in Britain upheld the, uh, the, the fight against extradition. He was not extradited. Huh. So it's not automatically uh, certain that this will happen. Robert Mackey is writing about the Assange case for The Intercept. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about Julian Assange and his detention by British authorities today. Thank you. Thank you. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Finally, we can all see what a black hole looks like. Scientists unveiled the first ever image of a black hole yesterday. It's an impressive glowing orange donut-shaped ring. Scientists aren't the only ones looking at space these days, though. Filmmaker Claire Denis actually set her new movie, High Life, aboard a spaceship. High Life is the French filmmaker's first all-English movie. Film contributor Milos Stalik sat down with Claire Denis to hear more about High Life. So, Claire, the first thing that I heard about your film, new film, High Life, is that it's a science fiction film, which set me off against it, number one, because I thought, well, okay, another genre film. And then I read some things about it, and it was the same thing. It's a genre film. It's science fiction. And when I finally saw it, it really is not. And I think that's kind of an attempt by a lot of critics and people to pigeonhole it into a genre film, which it is not. But it's a much different, very ambitious, intimate drama, which happens to take place in space. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it was always the idea of the film, yeah. you know. When I met this English producer, Oliver Dungy, he asked me, would you like to do a film in English one day? So maybe I can try. And he said, I have an idea for you, a femme fatale story. I said, wow, I think I have a story for that femme fatale. Because the situation is very simple, right? We are on this prison ship mm. in which these prisoners have been deceived into going on this voyage. Yeah. Promise possible of redemption, of being saved which we know is not to be true, hurtling towards a black hole. Many of them die on the way. And so the film is told not in a linear fashion, but through the eyes of its main protagonist, played by Robert Pattinson. Yeah, name's Monte. And there's kind of a contradiction, because on the one hand, when you think of space, you think of limitless freedom, right? Open, we're going everywhere, but at the same time, it's a prison at the same time. Yeah. So it's these two contradictions. Yeah, it's a double prison because if you cannot go outside, you know, the void is going to absorb you. Right. One of the key scenes in the film is, is when those who have died are let off and let loose into space. Yeah. Which is, in a way, very beautiful in a way because just the way that you shoot it is this descent into nothingness. Yeah, yeah. It was moving to shoot because it's something I knew could be real, you know, mm -hmm. and I... Wow. Even though we were in black drapes in a studio and Robert was telling me the other day, he felt that void. Mm -hmm. mm. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milo Stelic speaking with filmmaker Claire Denis, whose new film, High Life, 
opens tomorrow. So you had an interesting background. You grew up in Africa. Yeah. My father was... He was a colonial administrator. Yeah. Yeah. And then after the end of colonialism, he stayed in Africa. He worked there. My father was not really happy in France, I guess. Happy was not, is not the right. He felt he needed something more than just a job. Speaking of Africa, this is something that you yourself, from your very first feature, Chocolat, really felt in some ways a need to go back to and re-explore, both in Chocolat, white material, and the way that you were also... Beau attract- travail also. Beau yeah. travail, exactly. Mm-hmm. Also interested in films in which the characters were most often some kind of an outsider. Sure. I guess my first film was really an obligation for me. There was no way to escape that film. The film was like presenting myself. I come from that part of the world, that part of education, that part of frustration, that part of being maybe guilty, you know? I love the quote that you made about high life in which you said that you forbade yourself any nude scenes. And that's a very beautiful line. High life speaks only in desire and fluids. Yes. And then that second part of that quote is also really beautiful because it says, for me, the most erotic scene in the film is when a young inmate masturbates while staring at Julia drying her hair in front of a ventilation shaft. Yes, it's true. (laughs) Because to me... Finding an erotic moment in cinema, generally, is not so easy. Cinema is a difficult time, I think, filming true erotic scenes. But cinema is really has the link with erotism, Mm -hmm. you know, and physics. But often it's oblique, you know, because I kept thinking of what, for me, is a very erotic scene, which is from Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now, which is Julie, Julie Grist and Donald Sutherland, which is about dressing. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. And which you need that level of And Julie Christie is such a great example of a very, very sexy actress. Absolutely, absolutely. One of the most beautiful concepts is this garden on the spaceship and mm-hmm. which they tend very carefully and which is the connection in a way to the earth, yes. to, to this other kind of life. and Where we come from. Where we come and from. It's alive also because it's like a baby growing in the womb of a mother. It's also seeds growing. And I remember you're talking about, of course, always when there's any kind of an element of quote-unquote, science fiction or futuristic about Kubrick and Tarkovsky. But still, that garden scene reminded me of the shots of Tarkovsky in Solaris, where you have these kind of flashbacks to the Earth. With the pond. With the pond, among the most moving. Yeah. I did film a pond, too. I wanted maybe the pond to be in the film, but the garden was enough homage Uh to Andrei Tarkovsky. And you said also about him that he makes you feel open in a way that he opens doors because he's exactly that, about opening doors, not closing and giving you the definitive... I remember the first time I saw Stalker Mm -hmm. when the film turns in color, when Mm -hmm. they enter the zone. Mm -hmm. For me, it's one of the most striking images of science fiction I ever seen. I felt something was happening to me, to my body, to my Mm. senses, to my mind. I was in the zone, actually. 
when they, when they finally get in and when the tra- yeah when it, when, tra- when when it, it shifts tra- from black and white to from, color from black and white to yeah. color yeah yeah I never forget that shock. So how did you work on editing the film? Because the editing is really interesting in the way that it seems to move so seamlessly. I mean, you're not really conscious of the time period that you're in, but at the same time, it seems very natural. Like you're living it in the moment, even though it may be a flashback. I was obsessed by the idea that the time they were having in the ship was not the time on Earth, you Uh know. uh Maybe everyone they knew on Earth Mm -hmm. were dust bone you know right. so i mean this made me crazy you know <laughs> i mean this feeling of not living the same time uh-huh. you know that's why i wanted the film to be in three parts uh-huh. plus flashbacks right. and then the other souvenir and also loose image from earth coming coming loosely coming yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And then the other thing was this brilliant idea of the design by Olafur Eliasson, who worked with you on this, which really departs from all the other concepts, the high-tech shtick yeah. that's in science fiction. I mean, talk yeah. about this a little bit, because you went and researched this. and I met him through my producer, Oliver Dungy, and immediately I felt at ease with him, number one, because he was also interested by black holes, but also he's interested... You knew this beforehand, that he liked the idea of... I've seen this beautiful exhibition in London. Oh, at the Tate. Uh, mm, uh-huh. Yeah. I knew the yellow light since, uh-huh. but it's very tactile also to work with uh, Olafur. Olafur, he can build a, a table, a chair, a lamp... It's exactly the same if it's a spaceship, you know. Mm-hmm. Everything has to be done and touched mm-hmm. and felt. Well, the other thing about you're working with Olafur um, and the design for the spaceship, which is... It's a box. It's a box? It's a jail. I had written already the script with this corridor in the middle. I wanted a jail. Mm-hmm. And the only thing could be the garden. But this shape of a box was something very important for me. Because the rest of it is the garden, the medical center, which is downstairs, which... The locker room. Uh, which, the locker which Juliet mm. Binoche is, the mm. doctor. Is and the, the morgue. And the morgue. Mm. And then you have basically a corridor with cells. Yeah. And and the fuck box. <laughs> and in this... Um, this masturbation machine. The masturbation machine, in which Juliet Binoche uses use. use uh, profusely or with, with pleasure. Only once. Only once. But in <laughs> Only a great... One. <laughs> a great ones. Probably great ones, right? Because the whole idea of the film is she's obsessed with life continuing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And she's the medical. She's a criminal, also. You know, she killed her own children, so the obsession is almost a. She's almost crazy in a way. You know. You you refer to her once as like your Doctor Strangelove. She's I, not quite, but I think she's a media. Okay, but she's yeah, oh, exactly uh, Medea. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, yeah. okay, okay, that's, that's an interesting concept. I want to say something about Medea. Medea is one of the most important figure of mm-hmm. of women image, oh, you know, because she does what a mother cannot do. Right, she do it kills for a children. man. She kills the children for a man, right? Mm-hmm. You give two credits in the film, two thanks credits. One is to Agnes Godard, who has been your cinematographer yeah. for so many but years. But she, she couldn't do but, that but film. But she's a great, yeah. Yeah, great collaborator of yours. And yeah. the other one is to Pierre Ricient, yes. who is a great figure of cinema whom very few people outside of cinema really know. He, he saw the film before. Uh-huh. He, 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 he came to the editing room uh-huh. and he saw the film finished. Uh-huh. So... I missed him, but I was happy that I was able to show him mm-hmm. the film. 
Well, we all learned a lot from him. Yeah, and people exactly. like that, unfortunately, are not born every single day, no. who know so much, but who also and have such a love. Give such a trust to the people he likes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Pierre was always giving more, you know, more option, more freedom. He was very generous. Oh, I mean, very, whatever, very. you know, with anything, with ideas, with, mm. uh, of course, he was filled with ideas, so it was an idea a minute, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So, so he would, you could never run out of things to talk about or things to discover. I'm happy we spoke about him. Right. Touched me a lot. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Eloy Stelic speaking with filmmaker Claire Denis, whose new film, High Life, opens tomorrow. Thank you very much, Claire. Thank you. Miloš, it's a great name. Oh, thank you. <laughs>